Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So four months ago on a Wednesday night, we started this series back in Matthew chapter 5 called Fit for a King, and it was uh, literally a verse-by-verse series through the Sermon on the Mount. And the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably multi-layered, but probably a summary purpose is Jesus preaching his longest recorded sermon in order that he could convey to his audience then and those of us that are reading it now, He is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what I'm like as the king. And this is what I like in those that are part of my kingdom. And so we have gone deep in these months on the issue of our heart. Not just the heart, but what proceeds from the heart. Um, We have gone past the demands of the law. And we've recognized that to be in grace is not to be slackened from the demands of the law, but is, it is to rise above them and not only bring our actions into conformity with who God is and what he says, but to bring our attitudes, our hearts, and our desires, and our aspirations. And so we've spent several months, week after week, going through these verses, and now we come to the end of his sermon. And what Jesus does and especially in the message that preceded this one and then this one tonight, Jesus is making sure before he sends everybody home from his message on the hillside that he reminds them that they need to do something with what he's preaching. He's reminding them that it wasn't just to teach some great heavenly philosophy or to give them something to think about, but he's actually preaching the Sermon on the Mount as a call to action. He wants them through this thing called repentance. It's a Greek word. It's metanoia. It means to change the way you think about God, yourself, and the kingdom. That's what repentance means. It means to change the way you perceive God and his kingdom. That's what it means in the context. And he's saying, I want you to do that. And you'll know that you're doing that when your life begins to shift. That's what we have to start emphasizing over and over again, that Christianity in the last 50 years in the United States of America has become extremely cerebral, academic, or on the other side of the the extreme, it has become all about, oh man, I just want to feel good in this moment. And so people are showing up to get their Sunday hit off the Christian crack pipe so they can get high for a minute and then hopefully that high will last until they can get back next Sunday and get another hit on it. Forgive the metaphor, but that's the way a lot of people approach their Christianity. And then between Sunday to Sunday, their lives are completely unimpacted by what they say they believe. And so we've got to get back to this place where we recognize that when Jesus was preaching, he brings all of the stuff that he's talked about in these three chapters And he brings it down to this moment. This is what he's going to ask his original audience, and he's asking us. He's saying, hey, what are you going to do with everything I've just told you? And then he's going to amplify it through this very familiar illustration. And in this teaching of the two houses that are built, what he's revealing is this. Your entire eternity depends on what you personally do with what I say that's what Jesus does and every now and then we just got to step into the intensity level 
and, and, and not make it about our comfort zone, but make it about what he makes it about, which is our eternal standing. And so I want to go through these verses, and, and there's not a lot of them, but it'll still take me about as long as it normally does, so I'm glad you packed a lunch. But here we go. I want to give you this message. It's just called Life from the Ground Up, and my goal, I'm not even trying to hide it or sweeten it, or my goal tonight is for you to ask and discern what really is my life founded upon? What is my faith founded upon? What's my Thursday founded upon? What's my hope founded upon? Because you're actually living every single day of your life on some sort of foundation. And a lot of people haven't examined the foundation in a long while. I've, I've, I've bought a few houses in my lifetime. And every time we've had that pre-purchase inspection, we, I usually pay for it. It feels like it gets more expensive every time we move. I just want to stay put for a while. But last time it was like $450 to get a guy to come out for about three hours and tell me anything and everything was, that might be wrong with this house I'm purchasing. And I remember the house, we were looking at a house before the one we're living in now. It was gorgeous. It looked great. The price was amazing. It was in the perfect location. I thought, this is it. it I was really excited about it. And the guy was 15 minutes into the inspection, and he calls me over, and he says, you don't want to buy this house. I'm like, no, dude, I want to buy this house. He's like, no, you absolutely don't want to buy it. I'm like, what, termites? He goes, nah, you wish it was termites. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he starts showing me everywhere that the foundation, there's cracks in the garage, there's cracks in the driveway, there are problems in the door jams, doors won't close. And, he's, and with his trained eye, I would have bought it, by the way. I, I was raised in the suburbs. I know nothing about construction. I am not, a, I'm not skilled in that. I, I was looking at what it looked like from the ground up. I was like, it looks good to me. I can live here. This is where I, I need to be. And he's like, oh, no, man, you need to see things through my eyes and he showed me that if I bought that house it would have been a complete disaster why not because it wasn't pretty not because it wasn't the right price not because it wasn't in the right location it was because the whole thing was on a faulty foundation and so the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus being the inspector and telling us whether or not the house of our lives is going to stand and so let's go through here, and it's, it's really three simple points. The first one is this. Jesus is going to introduce us to two people, to two people. There's a wise person, a wise man, and a foolish man. So let's start with a wise man first. He's a wise and faithful person in verse 24. This is what Jesus says. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now, this is, what, this is a little, this is teaching tonight. This is not Yahoo preaching. This is teaching. This is too important for me to rely on anybody's emotions, especially my own. Jesus wants us to think about it. Look at what he says. He says, whoever then hears these words of mine. Jesus is not simply interested in generation after generation of people kind of generalizing what he was about, his, his kind of 10,000-foot view message, and then just kind of dismiss any attention given to the actual words that he said. Jesus says, no, I actually want you to know what I'm like, but I want you to know what I said, not just the headline, but all of it. Because what I'm going to tell you is this, you need to hear the words and you need to do them. You actually need to do, bring yourself in alignment with, obey, say yes to what I actually taught. And he's speaking in context here about what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, but it applies to all of the Word of God. But we don't even have to do that tonight. This is what he's saying. He's saying, if you will hear what I say, believe what I say, and do what I say, you're like a guy who was building a house and... He founded it on the rock. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Think about this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. So Jesus is preaching. Let's just say he's preaching to 2,000 people. Every single one of them heard the same words. Every single one of them heard the message that Jesus was preaching that day. 
Every single one of us that have been here in this series, we've read the same words, have heard the same teaching. And so Jesus is saying, everybody has an opportunity to say yes to me and what I say. Now, this wise person who's faithful not only hears the words, but he believes the wisdom of Christ. He believes it. How do I know that? Well, we're going to find out in a minute. It's very clear that the wise man that's representing uh, the people here, he hears and he believes. How do I know? Because he obeys. He obeys what is taught. Now, I'm going to burst a little bit of bubble here. Um, if you'll just let me get a little tight with some dogmatic statements, even if you won't, I'm going to do it anyway, so just relax. We only believe, we only truly believe what we obey. When we're talking about belief from a theological, from a faith standpoint, the Bible doesn't leave any room for us to nod at a truth from a distance. That doesn't count as believing it. Belief is always evidenced by us aligning ourselves with the truth. When we believe Jesus, we say yes to him. We don't simply stand off on the side in an academic position and say, yeah, intellectually, I think that's true, but volitionally with my will, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus would look at us, what he said in the last message, he would say this, yeah, depart from me because I don't know you. See, that belief thing is only legitimized by an obedient flow of action. Now, I want to be very careful here because there's not a person in the room that has obeyed God perfectly since he or she came to Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. What I'm talking about is what Jesus mentioned earlier, that if your life is a tree, then the normal produce coming off that tree is going to be good fruit. It's going to be obedience. Yeah, even a healthy tree can drop a pretty nasty apple every now and then, and those things are an anomaly. They're not the norm. So even a Christian rooted and grounded in the gospel can produce some bad fruit from time to time, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that a person that listens to his words and believes his wisdom will obey his will. That's what he said. He said, that person does them. So again, I don't want to be like micromanaging this, but I think that we are so loosely attached to the words of Jesus sometimes that every now and then we just need to get micro with it. We need to, we need to just say, stop for a second. I'm, I'm tired because we're like, we, the Bible for us, if it's longer than a tweet, you know, a pat, if we've got more than 180 characters, whatever a tweet is nowadays, we're like, that's too long. So give me the cliff notes. And what's happening is generation after generation now, we're knowing less and less of what Jesus actually says. So guess what's happening? We're filling in the blanks for ourselves. So now what we've got, culturally speaking, we've got this great idea about Jesus that we theologically understand he's the son of God. He's the Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago. He had a following. He did miracles. He was a prophet. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He preached. He stirred up a lot of angst among the religious leaders, and they finally got so fed up with him. They nailed him to a cross. Three days later, he rose again. Now he's on a throne in heaven. So we've got the big strokes down pat, but, but the reality is, is that there's a lot more to the gospel than just those facts. He's actually saying, yeah, I'm, I'm alive. When I rose from the dead, I'm alive, and I actually want to walk with you for your whole life. So I want, to do, I want me and you to do your life together. And so he's present, and he's leading, and he's active. And so what he's expecting from those of us who have said, yeah, we believe in you. We trust you, your Lord, your Savior, your King. You died for my sins. I, I trust you. He's like, yes, and as you trust me, obey me. Know my words, believe them, and do them. And child, if you'll do that, you're like that guy I talked about 2,000 years ago who built his house upon the rock. Now, we're going to circle back to this. By the way, here's the second person got this wise and faithful person, and then you got this kind of wayward, foolish person. Now, what's interesting, watch this. He's, he uses almost the same words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So remember, it's the same words, same Savior, same messaging going out, and you've got the same group of people. They're all hearing the same thing. And Jesus says, 
this type of person, the foolish person, the person that's wayward, hears the exact same message and says, I'm not going to do that. I hear you, but I am not going to do that. And Jesus says, that guy, that lady, is like the person that would build their house on the top of the dirt, on the top of the sand. So the wise man digs down deep. The wise man has to get beneath the surface. He's not a superficial believer. He's going deep. He anchors himself in Jesus and what Jesus says, and he begins to build from that bedrock of who Christ is and who Christ says, and his, his building is exemplified, his life is exemplified by obedient trust and faith. But the foolish person hears the exact same message and says, yeah, I want to build a life for myself, but I don't have to anchor it in and you, I don't, I don't have to do what you tell me to do. I can do this life. I, I heard your message. Now, by the way, he heard the message. If he, if he didn't believe it um, and refused it, he's a rebel. Um, if, if he believed it, and if he didn't believe it, he's, he's just proud. He's trusting in himself. He heard it, but he's like, I don't believe that, so he's trusting in himself. But if he did believe it and said no to it, it's not that he's proud, it's that he's rebellious. He's like, yeah, I know it's true. I believe it all right here, but that's not, that's not what I'm about. That's not how I'm going to live my life. And so he puts his, his, his life building on, on the surface, on the sand. He doesn't dig down. He doesn't find the bedrock. What's interesting is if you... If you came back in three months after these two people built their homes and you just stood 50 yards away at a distance, you're like, they look exactly the same. That house looks like that house. Shutters, doors, a pitch of a roof, got some windows, got some landscaping out there. You got a little sidewalk, you got a driveway. Let's throw in a white picket fence if we want to make it picturesque, suburbia, uh, United States of America, 21st century. From, from a distance, they look exactly the same, and for a while, they're going to operate the same. So the guy that dug down deep and did all of the work and, and just kind of threw himself into the need to anchor into the rock and built from the stable rock, that rock is Christ, that guy initially looks a little foolish. Why? Because from the ground up, his house looks exactly the same as the guy over here who's getting to do everything he wants the way he wants. And for a while, the two lives look the same. And so Jesus then moves to the catalyst, the thing that's going to show you the two houses aren't the same. And you know what it is? It's one storm. One storm. So, so let's just go there. Jesus is going to explore these two philosophies first. Here, let me give you this. When we're talking about these two foundations, they're like two philosophies for living. You've got this dependable foundation for life. Just remember the phrase. I'm hitting this over and over again on purpose because I want us to see that they're different. They're not the same. So here's the dependable foundation. It's the wise man who built his house upon a rock. Again, he dug down. It's beneath the surface. This is a simple, a rock is not impressive. You look at a rock, it's a rock. It's simple, but it's strong. And in this parable, it, it represents faith and loyalty to Jesus Christ and his revealed truth. Jesus said, the one who hears my words, believes my words, and displays that belief by obedience, he's the guy whose, whose house is anchored in the rock. And we're going to find out in a moment why that's important. That's the philosophy. So let's take it out of the architectural world and the construction world. Let's bring it into the faith world. And let's just answer this question. What was your today grounded upon? You know, oftentimes when we want to, well, preachers are terrible about this. I try my best not to do it, but I used to do it a lot. When somebody would come to me and they'd be like, man, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I made a profession of faith. I I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know. I don't really feel God. I don't really like to pray. I don't love the word of God. I, church is really not my thing, but I know I need him and I want to go to heaven when I die. But Jeff, I just, 
I don't know if I'm really saved. Do you know what I used to do? I used to say, all right, man, let's put on my detective hat here. Let's go back to that moment when you accepted Christ. When did that happen? Maybe it was a year before. Maybe it was 10 years before. Maybe it was 50 years before. And so I make them go on this long journey, even if it's a year. I can't remember what I did yesterday. I mean, trying to remember what you did a year ago or five years or 10. And I make them go on this long journey. I'd be like, okay, so you're 52 now and you were nine. Tell me about that day. They're like, uh, somebody was screaming in a pulpit. I got scared. I walked forward. I was crying. My mom dragged me forward. Um, they told me to pray this prayer to ask Jesus in my heart. And I did. And I would have been like, did you mean it when you prayed it? Yeah, I think I did. You're saved. You're going to heaven. Glory to God. Now go away. Don't worry. Sleep well. Live your life. Hallelujah. Now I wouldn't be that cavalier about it, but that was kind of it. So what I would do, and preachers still do this, they take them back to a long historical point of time and they try to figure out if that was real or not. Do you know how unnecessary that is? Let me tell you how you know if you're saved. Is he Lord of your life right now? Are you trusting in him right now? Are you believing him right now? We make salvation about a detached experience that happened in the past. And it's almost like when we, we had this moment where we said this prayer that isn't in the Bible and we asked Jesus to come into our heart, which isn't in the Bible, and then we said, because of that, and they told me that was a good enough thing to seal the deal, it doesn't really matter how we're living because we meant it when we said it, and if that was real, then we're going to heaven when we die. Except none of that is in the Bible. The, the actuality is this. The question is, is your life still grounded in the rock? Is he still Lord? Do you trust him today? Because if it was real back then, it's real today. If it's not real today, it wasn't real back then. It may have been an emotional moment. You may have been trying the best that you knew how to do something to get the guilt off of you. But if you didn't anchor in the Lord, it wasn't real. And so if between then and now, it's just been this up and down kind of sometimes, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe if I feel like it, I don't know. That's not, that's not salvation. That's Bible Belt religion. And guys, with my job and my position, my platform, we've made that kind of profession a faith epidemic. And is it any wonder while so many people who had that experience in their history, that moment of Jesus coming to my heart experience, but have never found power, have never found overcoming victory, have never found joy, have never found peace, have never found purpose, have never found love, and all the things that Jesus is about, they kind of don't want, but they try to squeeze some of that out. That, is that really the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives? The answer is no. Jesus is saying this. If your house was built on the rock, it's still on the rock. So I don't have to go all the way back then to figure out if I, if I anchor down properly. All I have to do is do an inventory of just, say, the last three months of my life. And if Jesus isn't Lord, and again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Don't excuse yourself from considering your own salvation because what you think you're hearing is me saying you got to be perfect. I'm not saying that. The Bible delegitimizes that. If we say we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. That's what the Apostle John wrote. And so we don't have to go back in time. If the foundation was real, then it is real. If the foundation is not real today, if he's not Lord today, then whatever that was, whenever that was, it wasn't founding your life upon the rock. So we see the other part, and it's basically what I've said. It's, it's the deceptive foundation. It's a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. So if the rock represents Jesus, a wise person digs down and anchors in Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what Jesus has said, and we stake our eternity and our lives in that, then we're, we're depicted here by Jesus as being wise, and our lives are founded upon a rock. Well, then what's the sand? 
You want to know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. The sand is everything and anything but Jesus. Anything. It could be anything. So whatever we might be living for that isn't Jesus Christ and his glory, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, Jesus Christ and his teachings, if our life isn't founded upon that, it doesn't matter what else it is founded upon, it's not on the rock. So a lot of us think, okay, the dude that built on the sand, he's going out, he's hooking up every Friday night, he's getting sauced, he's getting high, he's stealing from his boss, he hates God, he hates the word of God, he hates Christians, he's persecuting his Christian co-workers, that's the dude whose house is built on the sand. Or it could be the self-righteous moral church member who never curses, swears, gets drunk, sleeps around, keeps all of the rules, memorizes scripture, but trust in her own morality. That can be sand. <laughs> this is getting real, isn't it? Now they're like, ah, please stop. Listen, this is why Jesus taught this. Half of his ministry, maybe not half of it, but a good portion of it, was Jesus coming hard against the religious system of their day that had deceived so many people, but delivered none. And so when he's saying this, he's saying everything else is sand. Remember, it all looks the same from the ground up. So a saved life and a religiously moral life from the ground up, they look the same. They look the same. But there's one catalyst that facilitates the disclosure of whether a life is founded on the rock or on the sand. And again, it's the storms now, I'm going to give you a short-term view of this and a long-term view. So let me start with a short-term. Let's go down into verses 25 and 27, and we'll bring those verses together, and we'll see Jesus introduce one storm. Here's the thing that I want you to know. The storm finds both lives, the rock life and the sand life, the wise person who's born again, grounded in Jesus, and the foolish person that is not born again and is grounded in whatever else. Storms find everybody equally. So away with the teaching that says, if you're walking in the Spirit and you're obeying God, no storms will ever find your life. I'd like to see what people do. I mean, Y'all know people preach that, right? It's like, man, if you're just obedient, you're just trusting, you just walk in the straight line with Jesus, nothing like that can happen to you. I can't wait till that person gets to heaven and bumps into Job. Job's going to say, hey, I actually heard what you were saying down there. Can we talk for a decade? We got eternity. I'd like to talk with you about my life for about a decade. Would that be cool? Because Job was the most righteous man of his day. God said that, not Job. Job wasn't strutting around saying, yeah, I got the number one righteous guy badge. That's not what Job was saying. God said that about Job. And yet calamity hit Job's life so intense, tensely. And so... A storm can find the most faithful saint. John, you're, you're getting hit with a storm right now, man. What you, what you heard today is a storm. We don't receive it, but it's real. To, to fake it and say, oh, that doesn't bother me at all, when you know on the inside you're saying, God, what's going on? So storms find us. My family got rocked by a storm in 2011 on my birthday. Rocked and sh completely shifted our lives. My friend Steve out there went through a storm, a massive storm that affected every part of his life with a business that he owned. And he didn't ask for it. He didn't sign up for it. He didn't see it coming. Sandra, you know about storms. As a matter of fact, we all do. Everybody in the room knows about them. There's no storm-free zone in this thing called life on planet Earth. But let me tell you what storms will do. They will reveal what our lives are grounded upon and the degree to which they're grounded upon those things. And so let me just give you what Jesus says. Remember, he says, I want you to hear the words. So none of the words of Scripture are wasted. Sometimes I read, you know, the genealogies. I'm like, so-and-so uh, begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And then I wake up, and I'm like, where was I? And I'm, uh, I know it's, it's God's Word. It's, there's nothing wasted, but... I will have to learn what he wants me to learn probably when I get to heaven from some of those things. But the reality is, is that all of this stuff is preserved in this book for our good. And so when Jesus says, and the rain fell, 
he starts describing the storm. Now, this is, again, a parable, and so these are metaphors. They're symbolic of something. But storms, when I think of the rain, it reminds me that storms come through events that you can't control. That John Fogarty back in the day, some of you old rock and rollers that said, who stops the rain? Wasn't that a song? Credence Clearwater Revival? I always get in trouble when I talk to church people about my old rock and roll past. So. Um, storms, when, when the rains that are being described here, it's not like a mist or a sprinkle. It's a torrential downpour. And if you've ever had the misfortune of being caught in one of those things, whether you're driving, whether you're walking, you're carrying something, um, it, it's, it's really a powerless feeling because all you can do is try your best not to get any wetter than fully saturated. But in Jesus's day, you've got to remember architecture was different. Streets were different. There was no pavement. So when rains came hard and heavy there, it was a whole different ballgame than it is now. And then he said, and the floods came. So when it rains and those, those, those um, trails and streets and pathways and the ground was not conducive to drainage, water would build up and sometimes there was flash flooding in that region where water would come down and move through valleys and it would wipe out everything that's what Jesus is describing here he's not describing a slow rising tide in a river he's talking about a torrent a flash flood that comes through so you've got the rains coming from the sky and the flash flooding moving on the ground and then Jesus makes it extra intense and he says and the winds were howling and the winds blew and so I want you to think about this. In the metaphor of life, every single one of us are exposed to the storms of life and it beats on you and it rains on you and it cuts through your expectations and your plans and your promises and your hopes and your outlooks. It just comes barreling through. It doesn't ask permission. Storms don't apologize when they come in and change the landscape of your life. And, and listen, sometimes, it, you know, we're thinking to ourselves, it's the devil, it's always the devil. Well, sometimes it is the devil. But sometimes, friends, it's just life. It's just the realities of living on a sin-cursed planet. The planet is cursed. The Bible, Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he says, the whole planet is groaning, waiting for its redemption. And so we live in this terrestrial ball that is cursed, and then you've got the demonic realm, and you've got satanic realm, and then you've got the curse of sin, and it's just a, it's a big, hairy, nasty mess down here on planet Earth. And sometimes it's like the blob. It just kind of, it touches, it shows up right at your doorstep. And it just sucks in your life. Jesus used a whole lot more poetic language. He used rain and flood and winds, but then he says this, all of that comes together, the trifecta of trouble. He says it beat on that house. It beat on that house. It beat on that house. Both houses. The one founded on the rock who is Jesus and the one built on anything else. It's the storm that came. Now, I want to say this before moving on. I believe, based on, you've got metaphors in the Old Testament, which Jesus, very familiar with the Old Testament, as its author, he knew what was in it. God would use these storm elements. I believe it's Ezekiel 13. He describes the, the final judgment in these similar terms. Wind, rain, floods. Jesus is not just saying trouble will expose what your life is founded upon. He's looking beyond earthly trouble, and he's saying the storm of the appointment at the judgment seat of God is going to reveal everybody's foundation. Just, just go there. I know this is not popular preaching. I've never been popular. Don't even care anymore. I want to be helpful, and I want to be true, and I want to be loving. But why do you think Jesus is giving this message now? because he wants us to examine our foundation before the final storm. He wants us to be able to assess where we are today. So think about this. Maybe the sovereign God of heaven allows storms to find his children 
in order that we might assess where are we actually anchoring and grounding as the foundation of our hope. Because when everything goes great, you ain't examining your foundation. Not as much as you are when the storms hit. Man, (laughs) I've got like 15 different side trails I want to run here. Before I got saved, and I was a religious, you know, whatever. I don't even know what the word is, but I grew up in church, and, you know, y'all know my story. I, I said, oh, I did all of the religious, culturally, Bible Belt stuff that kids did back in the 70s. And so I prayed that prayer when I was about 9 or 10, got baptized when I was 14, and then leapt off the deep end into a world of, of sin. And uh, every time I got in trouble, which was a lot, I was always getting in trouble, from about age 19 to right before I got saved, I'd, I'd be sitting somewhere in trouble with the law or sitting somewhere in trouble with work, and I'd just be like, Jesus, you know I believe in you. Will you please get me out of this trouble? I'm sorry I haven't been living for you. I promise if you just get me out of this one last little thing that I've squeezed myself, I'll, I'll do better, I'll do better. I know I'm not living the way that I should live. Please just help me. Have mercy on me. What was I doing? I was in a storm, and I was looking at my life. Because the storms have a way of exposing what your foundation is. And unfortunately for me, my foundation was imaginary. I didn't have any foundation in Jesus. But the Lord used the storms to bring me to that place where I realized, whatever the real Christian has, I don't have that. And so let's get down to the the end of it. I'm, I'm so reluctant to move quickly away from the storm, but I think we get that. I think of all that he says in this passage, the easiest thing for us to relate to is that part of it. I'm going to add this, and I know we have different kind of views about the end times that are represented in this room, um, and that's fine. I don't base my fellowship. I hope you don't base yours on what somebody thinks about the order of events at the end of the age. But my, it's called eschatology. It means your view of the end times. My view of the end times includes the church going through periods of suffering before the return of Jesus Christ. I, I, once upon a time, I believed we would escape all of it. I believed that the rapture would get us all out of here and we'd never see the darken, darkening of any sky. I don't believe that anymore. I don't, I, I have a hard time reconciling that belief with what Jesus says about the church going through suffering and the saints going through suffering in the book of Revelation. So I, I don't want to just kind of rush past this issue of the impending storm that's coming. There, there is a storm that's going to find the planet. And whether you want to call that the tribulation, the great tribulation, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, I don't want to, I don't want to split those hairs tonight. But I will say this. Compared to whatever's coming, these are very easy days. Very easy days. And if we are stumbling and struggling with God when the the clouds are gone and the sky is blue, yeah, we get a little rain now and then, but it's, it's nothing like what's coming. If we are staggering and stumbling and, and getting knocked off course in days of ease, then how do we have any reasonable expectation that when all of hell breaks loose on earth, and I mean that literally, I'm not being flippant, when all of hell, say, well, Jeff, that's not going to happen. Tell that to the Christians in Syria. Tell that to the Christians in fundamentalist Islamic cultures. Tell them that they're not going to suffer for their faith because Jesus is going to get them out of here before any of that happens. You see, if a doctrine is true, it's true everywhere on the planet. There's not an American version of eschatology. And so when they're moving into villages and they're slaughtering them, that's all in the Bible. And these are the beginning of birth pangs. And yet we in the West are so um, diseased with our comforts. And so we, you know, somebody... They, they play a song we don't like on Sunday, and bless God, we're going to move our letter down the street. I can't believe they've done that again. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I've been pastoring a long time. You wouldn't believe the things people get upset at. Matter of fact, let me just give you a Bible, because Bible's always good. Jeremiah 12.5 is a verse that I'm hoping to preach an entire sermon on, um, maybe even before the end of the year. But this was Jeremiah's word, Jeremiah 12.5. It won't be up on the screen, so you can write it down and look it up later. But Jeremiah 
is sent by God to prophesy to Israel right before they're about to be judged because they turn their back on God. And they can't believe that Jeremiah is preaching doom and gloom, and they're upset, and they're mad at him. They're wanting to kill him. And here's the word that the Lord gives. He says to Israel, who had turned their backs on God, they thought they were founded upon the rock and the covenant that God gave them through Abraham. But they were serving other gods. And God's like, yeah, I made the covenant, but it's a conditional covenant in your generation because I also told you that if you turned your back on me and started worshiping other gods, that I would wear you out. And now the spanking was about to find them. And Jeremiah was the guy saying, dad's getting the belt out. And they were like, daddy ain't going to get the belt out. We're Israel. We are Israel. And Jeremiah's like, no, I'm serious. You're about to get a whipping. And they're so mad at the prophet. And this is what God sends. He says in Jeremiah 12, 5, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with the horses? And if in a safe land, safe land you are so trusting, what are you going to do in the thicket of Jordan? What does that mean? Jeremiah is giving this message and he's saying to Israel, you can't even obey and trust God in days of ease. How do you think you're going to respond when he lets the trouble hit you? He says, you're not even following the Lord in the safety of the land, which judgment hadn't hit yet, and it wouldn't, by the way, for several more years after he preached this message. He says, but when the, the, the plains of Jordan start to flood, and that again, the flooding, picturing the judgment, why am I even telling you this? The reason why is because we've forgotten in the church, not the culture, the church has forgotten what the back of the book says about what God will do at the end of the age. And we're all up here thinking, now, oh, man, I go to church. So what? I said, Jeff, we're here, man. Why are you harping on us? Well, I'm talking, I'm talking to you, but I'm talking beyond you. Going to church no more makes you a Christian then hanging out in your garage tonight will turn you into a Ferrari. It just doesn't work that way. It's not geographical. It's here. It's here. It's in the soul. And so Jesus is telling his people then, storms, plural, temporary, are going to find you, and they're going to beat on your life. Whether you are grounded upon the rock or built upon the sand, go ahead and prepare for the storms, but then beyond the temporary storms is the storm of judgment that God has promised that every knee will bow, every eye will behold, every tongue will confess. That we're all, it is appointed unto us once to die, and after this, what? Judgment. So we know it's coming. So what do we do? Well, mercifully, we're going to finish the message. Jesus examines two potentials. Because again, we still got two houses. We got one storm. The storm has been rocking both lives. Here we go. You have a triumphant potential. Everybody in the room has a potential for triumph. The house of the wise man, founded upon Christ, founded upon his words, anchored in the rock. When the storms came, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It got beat on. It experienced the howling rains. The torrential floods beating up against it it experienced the gales gale force winds hammering it but because it was anchored beneath the surface because it was entrenched in something solid because it went beneath the superficial when all of those storms hit it withstood because the storm eventually comes to an end. And when the wise man poked his head out his door, walked around, he probably looked up to God and said, thank you for allowing me to build it upon the rock. Thank you. Why would he say that? Because right down the street, right down the street was his neighbor. And the day before, his house and his neighbor's house looked exactly the same. They looked that way for a long time before the storms came. Maybe that neighbor would come out and say, man, do you ever feel stupid for having wasted so much time and effort and energy digging down and trying to get to that rock? Dude, take a look. Our houses look exactly the same. It didn't cost me anything. And you, 
You did all of that. What for? And then the storm came. And the man that had a triumphant potential, which was now a triumphant reality, was living next door to a guy that had a tragic potential. And it was now a tragic reality because the Bible says the house of the foolish man fell. And then Jesus adds this, and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? He's teaching us about eternity. He's not just teaching us about how to live your best life now. He's teaching us about eternity. He's literally saying this. Listen, this is so unpopular in our, our, our day. It's ridiculous. It's so unpopular that preachers have stopped preaching it. What am I talking about? If your life is not anchored in Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you're anchored in. In the end, you fall forever. You fall forever. That means you spend eternity separated from God. That is what happens when that final storm of judgment, when Jesus' other metaphor, the sheep, the lambs, are separated from the goats. The lambs go to be with God. The goats go into eternal judgment. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus talked about this all the time. And yet what's amazing is in our generation, we've now reached the point where people have conveniently decided to reinterpret that and that's not what he meant i get it i know you old school guys that's that's i know god help you that's what you, i know your people believe that you know got a little silver in the hair jeff got a little bald patch back there you're showing your age not only from your hair but also from your theology let me tell you how it really is because i heard this on a podcast <laughs> it's interesting to me that they reinterpret the hell part and all the symbolism there, but don't reinterpret the heaven part. That's kind of suspicious. We repackage the part that we don't like, but the part that benefits us, we keep that the same. Come on. If you're going to be a heretic, be an honest one. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Just let the Bible and the Son of God say what he means and mean what he says. And so the end result is this. Jesus says, the man on the rock survived, overcame, and triumphed. The man on the sand, because he wasn't grounded. It wasn't that it didn't look nice. It wasn't that it wasn't impressive. It's just that it was not able to withstand what was coming. Neither will religion whether you're a Baptist, a Methodist, a tongue-talking charismatic, born-again Catholic, a five-point Calvinist. Um, Religion is sand. It's all sand. If you're trusting in anything other than the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's all sand. And Jesus says, You need to inspect your foundation. So the Sermon on the Mount ends right there in verse 29. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What's crazy to me, when that word astonished in the English Standard Version, it translates a Greek word that the best way we could say it in our modern English was, he blew their minds. He, he, that's, it's literally that strong of a term in the Greek. It means they were blown away. They, they listened to what is our Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let's just say he preached for an hour and a half that day. And at the end of it, they're like, They were amazed, they were astonished, and most of them said no. Most of them said no. How do I know that? Well, one, he prophesied it. He said, 
the way under destruction is broad and many go in that way. The way of life is narrow and few find it. But all we have to do is just flash forward a little bit and on the day of his betrayal, how many people were hanging with him? How many people stayed loyal? How many people were right there with him? They, they, it's crazy. They nodded at his sermon, but they wouldn't kneel to it. And that's still happening. I feel, the fear, I feel the fear of the Lord on this right now, that our churches are filled with people that nod to the truth but won't kneel to it. Sand. It's all sand. And so when Jesus preached, even the skeptics of his day, even his enemies said, well, he speaks with a lot of authority. And I would just suggest this. He still does. He speaks with the authority of God the Son because that's who he is. For you that have anchored your life in him, hallelujah. The storms are going to come, but you will outlast the storm. For any that are hearing that have anchored their life in anything else, even the most impressive religious sand is still sand. His invitation to you today is exchange your sand anchor for a rock anchor. And all you have to do is surrender. The Sermon on the Mount is this. Obey the invitation of the king. Don't nod at it. Kneel to it. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we thank you for uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you, Jesus, for what we've been able to glean since May. And I ask you, Lord, that an unhealthy spirit of fear would leave every single one of our hearts right now. But wherever the fear of the Lord is needed, let it rest on us. God, I tremble when I see gaps that have been in my life over the last 25 years. And I thank you, Lord that an inspection of the foundation is a healthy thing. Jesus, we trust you. We surrender to you. We kneel to you. Come quickly, Lord. In your name, amen.